Hello there. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The Eric Erickson Show across the nation. The phone number is 877-973-7425. If you want to be on it tomorrow is Good Friday. Today is Holy Thursday. Uh, kings by tradition. In fact, the, the Queen of England today, although she will, she has had her son do it. Uh, they call it Maudie Thursday. Um, it is the day that Christ uh, washed the feet of his disciples. Uh, royalty around the world today in, in Christian societies tend to pass out money to the poor. It used to be actually up until the 1950s or 60s that if the poor were chosen by the royal family in Britain to receive a monetary handout, they received that monetary handout and were on uh, government pay for the rest of their lives to help them. Now it's um, souvenir gold coins and other things that are that are given out. Uh, it's it's a big day in the run up to tomorrow, which is the the one of the high holy days, I guess you could say, of Christianity. The the day Christians remember that Christ was crucified. Good Friday, you know. When I'm, my my oldest is now sixteen, when she was eight or nine, uh, someone mentioned Good Friday, and she said. Isn't that the day after Thanksgiving when everyone goes shopping? <laughs> and I believe I was the one who said, no, that's Black Friday. She said, I thought Black Friday was the day Jesus died. <laughs> no, that's Good Friday. <laughs> Why is it good? <laughs> that's the day he was crucified. <laughs> you know, when you think about it, well, it is is good because he laid down his life for us that we may not have to go through what he went through. You know, the, the sky went dark. God turned his back on the, uh, the first person of the Trinity, turned his back on the second person of the Trinity that day. We'll talk about that tomorrow. But I, I want to talk about something in relation to that. And I wrote something, and I hope you might consider actually reading this. If you text DATA to 33777, and I'll, I'll get personal with you. And, you know, just I like to get personal probably more so than my friends and family are comfortable with me getting personal with you guys. And I do it because I'm very blessed to have a radio platform that has grown pretty significantly. I think, what is it, 1.5 million is now the estimate of listeners uh, from Talkers Magazine or some such. Uh, And many people, I get emails all the time from people, and they say essentially, I'm so glad you're there to say this because I'm scared in my job. I can't say it even though I think it, and I'm glad you're there to say it. I feel very fortunate to be in a position with some level of security to be able to say the things that many people think that aren't shouldn't be off-the-wall things to say that were perfectly acceptable even six months ago, and now the mob comes for you when you say them. But also, we live in an age where you see the top 1% typically of someone's life on social media and you see it so often, you think that must be their life all the time. And all of our lives are messy and chaotic. And it is, it's hard for us in truth when we're on social media, on Instagram and the like so often that we forget that the people we see whose lives on Instagram are perfectly curated are troubled people themselves. I know a person who had the perfect 
Instagram page. Everything was just so. Living in luxury, an easy life, flying private, world-class cuisine in restaurants, wonderful family, great job, friends with celebrities. She committed suicide. Her life was one of despair, battling depression, and she was showing the best of it, and it caught so many people off guard because what was real was not being curated for the world to see. What was being curated is the carefully crafted image to show that nothing was wrong when there was a great deal wrong and she didn't want anyone to know. Never wanted to confide in people. And that brings out all sorts of uh, problems. Uh, there was a, an article, I think it was in The Atlantic last week by Derek Thompson. The The rate of uh, child depression has skyrocketed in the last number of years, even before the pandemic. There's a book out, um, I think it's called iGen, iGeneration, uh, that that shows the rise in teen suicide spiked after the release of the iPhone. And the whole premise of the book is that that highly online culture, both the bullying that can happen through Snapchat and the seeing your friends in a way, your friends used to be able to, or your, your friends, and I use air quotes, you can't see on radio, um, but the people you think are your friends, they're off having a good time without you. And you don't know about it. You may get wind at school that, well, there was a party and you didn't get to go, you weren't invited, and now you get to see it on Instagram and it raises teen depression. Uh, being so online can be a bad thing. So I try to talk sometimes, like now, about my world and my life and, and the sphere that I inhabit because I know other people are going through stuff and you oftentimes think that it's just you and it's not. I have been for months trying to get a meeting scheduled with a man who everyone has told me it is impossible to get a meeting with. The hardest man in my business to get a meeting with. And he agreed to meet. Took months. He agreed to meet three weeks ago said he would give me a call on a Wednesday or a Thursday after the show, and I never heard from him. And it's a very big deal, and increasingly time is of the essence. And I am somebody he does not know who wants a moment of his time like millions of other people do, and it means nothing to him and everything to me. And he followed up that Friday and said, hey, I, I'm, I'm sorry, Things came up, life happened essentially. Uh, can you meet the next week? I said yes, and he gave me a firm commitment. This past Thursday, we had a, a calendar on the calendar to talk. And then he got sick, my wife got sick, and we had to put the meeting off to yesterday. And then yesterday he was flying home, should have had plenty of time to land and get to the office and have our conversation. But the storms that are rolling through the east today rolled through the central states yesterday. It delayed his flight. He was in the air. So we still have not met. Um, it would be a big deal for me if, if we met and I got my way and, and they were able to do what I wanted. 
And it's, it's just one of those things. Sometimes you wonder, um, God, are you there? Are you listening to my prayers? Been praying about this. It's not happening. What's going on? There, there are all sorts of Psalms and scripture about, uh, wondering, God, are you even there? Are you listening? What's going on? Why aren't you there? Uh, how long, O oh Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. This is a um, psalm of a guy named Ethan who was in the court of King David who felt like he'd been abandoned by God. Uh, David has plenty of those. Uh, David has tons of psalms of, uh, God, where are you? Uh, the enemies are surrounding me. Uh, they're, they're laughing at me. They're saying, your God's abandoned you. Where are you? You want this one? Uh, try this one on for size. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. That's Moses. Remember that guy in the Bible, Moses? Uh, he feels abandoned. He's wandering in the wilderness. He feels abandoned. God's not there. Where are you, God? You know the irony of Moses writing one like this, uh, where are you, God? Have pity on us. Come back. Is Literally, he's got the Ark of the Covenant and a tent, and God is in the tent. God literally is literally footsteps away from where Moses is. All he has to do is walk into the tent, and he feels abandoned by God. He feels like God's not listening. I was talking to a, a pastor the other day. In fact, I think it was Eric Eric Reed who's going to be with me tomorrow. And he said he had heard a pastor one time say that God's working in your life every minute in thousands of different ways, and you may only be able to perceive a couple of them, and sometimes none at all, even though he's there, even though he's working. The week before Christmas, 2006, I lost my job. I didn't lose it that day. My my um, business partners called me. We were running redstate.com at the time. They said we were out of money. Uh, you got to find a new job by January 1st. We don't have any money to pay you the week after Christmas. And in a few hours, having lost my job, I was looking into my wife's eyes, telling her she had six months to live. We had a one-year-old. Um, my wife had a, a, a series of calamities had happened uh, over Labor Day in 2006. They, they finally found spots in her lungs. They needed to do a biopsy. And so they did the biopsy the week before Christmas. And... Man, it was like one of those scenes in the movies you see where they bring you down a hallway behind a security door and they put you in a little room with a, a fake plan and a Bible and a phone and tell you, Mr. Erickson, we're very sorry. Uh, your wife has a cancer that has spread and settled into her lungs. It is fatal. She has about six months. It was raining and there was a wreck and there was basically an all hands on deck. Everybody come to the ER. There was a big, big car collision on the interstate. The doctors had to go over there. So they'd come back and talk to my wife where I could do it. I volunteered. And I sat in the recovery room while she came out from under anesthesia to tell her that she was going to die. I had to look her in the eye and tell her she had six months to live. And oh, by the way, I got to go get the kid from daycare. I've got 45 minutes to get there. So I had to go get my kid. I was out of out of strength by the time we got home. I sat in the mud. It's pouring down rain. All I could do was cry. And 
had to eventually was able to get back to the hospital that night. And we, you know, there are conversations you never want to have with your spouse. And we had to have those conversations. (laughs) And eventually the doctor who had done the biopsy came in and said, you know, we're actually not sure what this is. We're going to send it to the Mayo Clinic. And the Mayo Clinic confirmed it was a completely benign condition. She was misdiagnosed. Now, ironically, funny the way God works sometimes. A decade later, I am being wheeled into an ICU unit. The doctors are saying we need to call my family because I'm probably not going to make it through the night. I thought I had allergies. Actually, I, honestly, I joined CrossFit and was just having trouble keeping up. All bad stories start in CrossFit. And I was struggling to breathe. I thought it was allergies or stress. I was under a lot of stress. And man, they strapped me to a gurney and rushed me into an ICU and, and said to call my family. My lungs had been filling up with blood clots. My blood oxygen was about 80% and falling. And my phone was ringing while they were doing all this. It was just absolute pandemonium. They're trying to get me to this ICU. I can't use my phone in ICU. My phone is ringing. It's my wife. I need to tell my wife what's going on. I answer the phone. The Mayo Clinic had called and said, we think you have lung cancer. Had they not misdiagnosed her a decade before, they would have never known. But they caught her early. Uh, she and Rush Limbaugh have very much the same type of cancer, and his was not caught early. It's genetic. It's, it's not from smoking. My wife's never smoked. It's genetic. There's no cure. But she takes a little pill every day that keeps the tumors from growing. The pill only works for two years. We've now passed our fifth anniversary of her being on this pill, and it still works. Life throws you curveballs. And sometimes... You wonder, God, are you even there? What's going on? And I get a sense that the the anger and rage that so many people are feeling in society right now, us versus them, a lot of that is, is one, people don't feel the presence of God, even if they're Christian, or they don't believe. They're not believers. It's just not their thing. But but largely, it's, it's we've all become distracted. There's so much... Um, this Jonathan hate piece that I, that I mentioned earlier about Babel and, and the last 10 years have been stupid. He says, if everything matters, nothing matters. Actually, I think if everything matters, everything matters. And we don't have the discerning ability. We, we never uh, grew with a sense of the ability to discern what really does and doesn't matter. And part of my job, I think, is to really focus on the things that really do matter. And, and I know I get told this all the time that uh, oftentimes I talk about things on radio that no other conservative host is talking about. And, and I don't think my job is to shovel the red meat in your direction, but to actually take the headlines of the day and tell you this is the story that really matters and here's why. And then sometimes it's to just hit pause. And talk to you like I am now and say, you know, calm down. There's a God. He's got this. And I know. Because I have lived through those moments where I really didn't think he did. And he did. And we can spend a moment, particularly today on Holy Thursday, and just hit pause for a second and say, you know what? He's got this. Don't freak out. Don't panic. Don't be angry. Love your neighbor. And we'll get on with the rest of the headlines. When we come back, you know, when I started out and could get nice quality sheets, I just thought I'm going to get a high thread count sheet. And if I get a high thread count sheet, it's going to be a really good sheet. Boy, did I learn that's not true. It's a myth. Bolin Branch, however, uses the best 100% organic cotton threads on planet Earth for superior softness and a better night's sleep. You can get a really 
good high thread count sheet, but if the underlying sheet is, well, crap, um, it's not going to work for you. Bolden Branch, however, my gosh, their sheets aren't just buttery, breathable, and impossibly soft to start, but they have the sign, the number one sign of a really good sheet. The more you wash them, the softer they get over time, and they don't tear up. They just get soft. It's perfect. You can try Bolin Branch. They're the highest quality threads on earth for superior softness and a better night's sleep. They're th- so luxurious. They're beloved by three United States presidents. And they've got over 10,000 stellar reviews. I'm one of them. I love my Bolin Branch sheets. You can feel the difference the moment they come out of the bag and every wash. It's just, man, they just transition to softer and softer. They're fantastic. Right now, get 20% off site-wide April 11th through 17th only at boldenbranch.com. That's boldenbranch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com for 20% off site-wide April 11th to April 17th, boldenbranch.com. Yes, you can. I sent out the pimento cheese recipe yesterday. If you text recipe singular, not plural, recipe to 33777, you can get the link uh, and you can see I, I sent out three in one one piece, one email. You can see it there on the site, uh, three different recipes. The one we make in our house because it's the one my wife likes, the one I grew up with, and then the trendy one with the cream cheese and stuff that everybody's eating these days. And I'm like, it's not really pimento cheese. It's cream cheese with cheddar mixed in. Okay, we got to move on to other stories, uh, one of which is percolating pretty significantly. Colleagues worry Diane Feinstein is now mentally unfit to serve, citing recent interactions. This is there's been speculation about her mental capacity for some time. This is the San Francisco Chronicle. When a California Democrat in Congress recently engaged in an extended conversation with Senator Feinstein, they prepared for a rigorous policy discussion like those they've had with her many times over the last 15 years. Instead, They had to reintroduce themselves to Feinstein multiple times during an interaction that lasted several hours. Rather than delve into policy, Feinstein repeated the same small talk questions like asking the lawmaker what matters to voters in their district, the member of Congress said. With no apparent recognition, the two had already had a similar conversation. The episode was so unnerving that the lawmaker, who spoke on condition of anonymity, began raising concerns with colleagues to see if some kind of intervention to persuade her to retire was possible. Feinstein's term ends in 2024. The conversation occurred several weeks before the death of her husband in February. I have worked with her for a long time and long enough to know what she was like just a few years ago, always in command, always in charge, on top of the details, basically couldn't resist a conversation where she was driving some bill. All of that's gone. She was an intellectual and political force not that long ago, and that's why my encounter was so jarring. Four U.S. senators, three of them Democrats, as well as three of her former staffers, And the California Democratic member of Congress told the Chronicle in recent interviews, her memory is rapidly deteriorating. They said it appears she can no longer fulfill her job duties without her staff doing much of the work required to represent the 40 million people of California. They said the memory lapses do not appear to be constant and that someday she is nearly as sharp as she used to be. During the March confirmation hearing of Katanji Jackson, Feinstein appeared composed and read pertinent questions, though she repeated comments to Jackson about the judge's composure in the face of tough questioning. Some close to her said that 
on her most difficult days, she doesn't seem to fully recognize even longtime colleagues. Sad to see, sad to hear. Keep her in your prayers. Uh, But, you know, people question Joe Biden as well, and it doesn't hit the media because they're so fearful it could help Donald Trump. And yet there are concerns there, too, for people who've known him for a long time. He's not the same guy he was just four years ago, yet the media doesn't want to touch that story. (laughs) There's a it's a satire account. Someone who is uh, supposedly uh, a progressive and says, our family was supposed to go on a trip to Disneyland today, but when I went to wake our six-year-old daughter, I found this. She refuses to get up. We've been saving for this trip for years. Elon Musk ruined our family vacation and shattered our kids' dreams. Uh, And it's a note on the door that says, mom and dad, I am not getting up ever again if Elon buys Twitter. I mean, the left-wing outrage in that is accurately captured. I mean, it is uh, genuinely just uh, has enraged people that Elon Musk has offered to buy Twitter. People, Twitter employees are actually on Twitter saying, if he buys it, I'm quitting. Maybe he can buy Major League Baseball after he buys Twitter and get rid of the designated hitter. Maybe, possibly. All right, to the phones we go. 877-973-7425. Kevin, you're up next. Welcome to the program. Hey, Eric. How you doing today? Great. How are you? Uh, doing pretty good. Just doing a little bit of trucking around Atlanta. Uh, listen, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I appreciate taking my call. It's a, my first time I've called, but you were talking about uh, those dark days you experienced uh, a few years ago, and um, I was thinking to myself about some dark days I faced over the years, and I was reminded as you were talking in the book of Mark, chapter 4, when the Lord uh, sent the disciples over the sea, you know, they were walking with him, you know, they're all in this boat. Well, he tells them before they cross the other side, he said, let us pass over to the other side. So here I told them where they were going before they ever got started, but when the storm uh, came up, the storms are raging, lightning, thunder, wind, rays, and everything. I mean, there's nothing out there but them in the water in the boat. Jesus is asleep. Well, obviously, you know, one of them, you know, wakes up and says, Master, care us not, we perish. You know, most of us would, you know, look at somebody and say, hey, didn't I just tell you 10 minutes ago we're going to be fine? We're going to the other side. Right. He said, where's your faith? And I think sometimes in our life that when we know the Lord's going to, Take care and leave. Uh, Kevin, Kevin, you broke up there. I'm I'm sorry. You lost your cell phone signal. Uh, but you're you're right there. Uh, it, it really is one of the the more interesting stories you got. It's kind of you know it's like Moses in that Psalms I was mentioning. I'm not to get too theological on y'all today. We'll save it for tomorrow. But um, I mean, you literally got like the Ark of the Covenant next door to Moses. Yeah, I mean, you, you got the God of all creation is in this tent. And he's like, where are you, God? Where are you? Why have you abandoned us? You got all the apostles with Jesus in this boat. He's already told them they're going to the other side of the, of the lake. They're, they're not, they're not going to heaven. They're just going across the lake and the storm comes up. They're like, Oh my gosh, we're all going to die. Wake this guy up. And you, I mean, you got God in the boat with you and you're freaked out. It is, I mean, these are these are pictures of humanity. I just, you know, it, one of the most striking images to me in, in all of Scripture is the Israelites. They literally 
literally have this pillar of cloud and fire. They see the Red Sea part, dry land between the wall of water, and they go across and they see Pharaoh. I mean, literally, they are almost through. you got wall of water on either side of you. And the chariots start coming in. They're like, oh, my gosh, God, where is he? He's left us. I mean, literally, he's like, no, he's there. He's pushing the water out of the way for you. Get out of the way. And, and they immediately go out and start sitting. They're like, well, maybe we should go back to, to Egypt. God really doesn't love us. Uh, where is he? Does he even exist? Like, have you? I mean, this is us to a T. It is an accurate representation of all of us. Uh, when the good times are rolling, we don't we don't worry about praying all the time. We, we don't worry about it. Uh, and uh, then then bad things here. We're like, oh my gosh, where is he? Why has he left us? Why why do I have to keep praying? <laughs> Just that's my lo- look. I, I'll be honest. That's me. That's me. Now. I got to move on to other things. I, I do need to say one thing, though. I need to ask for, for a particular prayer request. My wife, on Monday, I was not here because I had to take my son to a soccer game two hours south of our house to Albany, Georgia. It's not Albany. It's Albany. Um, I, I can't even really say it. My wife says it. She's from South Georgia. And uh, it is a, his last soccer game. And I was supposed to take him on Monday. And then the game got canceled because they realized there were standardized tests. And I couldn't take him today, having taken off Monday. And my wife is recovering from COVID. She's fine now. Um, and she is taking him. But uh, Lord have mercy. Please say a prayer that they had that soccer game because she is going to be enraged if she's got to drive that far and the storms cause them to cancel that soccer game. <laughs> for, for my sake, please pray. Okay, let me move on to other stuff. Uh, we, we got plenty to talk about. I want to talk about China. And if again, you know, as I said in the last half hour, oftentimes my job on this show is not to be the partisan red meat slinger, but to actually tell you what actually is going on in the world that actually matters. And this China stuff really matters. And it matters in ways I'm not sure everyone appreciates. There is in Western society and Western journalism, there is an infatuation with China. I've told the story before. I can't remember. It's been so long now. It's not one of those consequential stories where you kind of remember everything. It's one of those where I don't remember all the details, but I was on a train one time, not just any train. I was on the Acela Express. It's the pretentious train that the D.C. New York people go back and forth on. And I was not just anywhere on the train. I was in first class. I was on a book tour. I was there with my book uh, publicist. And who should be sitting there? Tom Friedman himself. Tom Friedman was on this train. We're coming into Washington, and he's got uh, like a cup and, and stuff in front of him and around him. And I had heard he's not really a very nice person. And, I, I you know, you, you hear these things sometimes and, and it rubs people the wrong way and all that. Uh, and um, he's there. And Tom Friedman, you should know, he writes all these, these nonsensical books that sound very elite and they're not. Like, for example, he had this premise at one point in one of his books that countries that have 
a McDonald's don't attack each other. Uh, this this Russia-Ukraine situation has given the lie to that one. But it sounded good, and people would repeat it, and you go to the cocktail circuit, well, I think we'll have peace through globalization because countries that have, have McDonald's, they don't attack other countries that have McDonald's because everyone wants the Big Mac. It's BS. But it sounded smart. And he's one of those people with an absolute infatuation with China. We should be more like China. We should should be able to build high-speed rail overnight. You know, the Chinese build high-speed rails, and they collapse the next week. The infrastructure in China is not that good. It's a fundamental flaw of communism. The whistleblower gets executed, so no one blows the whistle. And there, But it, it has taken over the, this Western idea, and members of Congress and the, the elite in the West, and particularly in the United States, they just believe that this is China's century. This is China's century. We're going to, China is going to be dominant. And I almost think in Washington, there are a lot of people, Republicans, Democrats alike, who think their job is to manage our decline, not to try to build us back up. Decline is a choice. And it's like they've chosen to decline. So, well, we can't stop China. We read the Tom Friedman book. Anyway, I was on this train with Tom Friedman, and I'll never forget he the, the, the person was trying to collect his stuff, and, and I, I, he didn't want it collected or, or wanted the guy to do something different. And he just starts complaining like, this wouldn't happen in China. This wouldn't happen in China. I mean, he's, he's yelling at the purser. He just, it was, a, it was a terrible, like cruel, mean interaction with the guy whose job is just to clean up. We're coming into Washington, D.C., and, and he starts lecturing the guy snottily as if he's this guy's moral better. It, it left a terrible impression. It's very much like I remember one time, and, and I, it's always struck me. You know, first impressions, you, you got to be mindful of this. I'm sure people think I'm a terrible person because they've seen me interact in some way, and maybe I was having a bad day. Maybe Rick Santorum was having a bad day. I remember him. Oh, I was covering him in Iowa uh, years ago when he won the Iowa caucus. I was with CNN. And he just had this rude interaction with a reporter. The reporter needed confirmation of a story that another network had so that his network could run it. And Rick Storm just jumped down the guy's throat. Now, this is, this is a story that helps you. The guy's just doing his job. Just confirm the story for him. And Santorum was really rude to the guy. And I've subsequently, I've known people who work for him who said that was the kind of guy he was, that, that he comes across as a good family man, but he can be terribly rude to you for no reason. But uh, with, with China, you got all these, these intellectually elite people in Washington who are actually not very pleasant people, and they love China. They are infatuated with China. And they think China is the next big thing. But when you actually get into it, uh, the Chinese aren't very good at anything other than stealing people's intellectual property and persecuting Christians. That's about the only things China excels at. This is from the New York Times. China sets aside the push to spread wealth in pivotal year for Xi. Xi Jinping's rhetoric about redistributing wealth was aimed partly at drumming up public support, but it unnerved entrepreneurs. And, and posed a drag on growth. For much of the last year, China's top leader, Xi Jinping, waged a fierce campaign to rein in private capital and narrow social inequalities. Regulators cracked down on tech giants and wealthy celebrities. Beijing demanded that tycoons give back to society. And the Communist Party promised that a new era of common prosperity was on horizon. 
Now the Communist Party is putting its campaign on the back burner. In doing so, Beijing is tacitly admitting that Mr. Xi's push to redistribute wealth has unnerved the private sector, a pillar of growth and job creation at a time when China's economic outlook is increasingly clouded. One of the bits of conventional wisdom in the West has been that China somehow managed to square the circle to have a communist society that was also capitalist. The problem is, in a communist society, you take from those who have and give to those who have not. And it turns out that the entrepreneurial class in China is rather livid at the idea that they created all the wealth, it's their hard work, and now the government's going to take it all from them and give it to people who haven't done anything. They're furious about it. And the communists have had to bow to the capitalists in China. And this comes with this perverse lockdown in Shanghai. Robin Hardy at the Financial Times has this piece. One of the hardest things to bear about the Shanghai lockdown, says a contact who has been shut in a small apartment with her father for two weeks, is the uncertainty. She spends her days on WeChat message groups trying to coordinate bulk food orders or looking out the window to see where the authorities have placed the red lines of their cordon sanitaire, which residents must not cross. There is little other information. Social media shows the city on the edge. Residents yell from their balconies to demand food. Drones broadcast dystopian messages demanding they return inside. Thousands of people have tested positive, are crammed into isolation centers. On Tuesday, the U.S. State Department ordered non-essential workers to leave its consulate in the city because of arbitrary enforcement of local laws and COVID-19 restrictions. It is one of the most severe lockdowns of the entire pandemic. It will affect the economies of Shanghai, China, and the whole world. Yet it is happening at a time when in Europe and the U.S., many people are on their third or fourth round of infection and ready to ignore the whole thing. There's a risk, therefore, they miss the significant consequences of what's taking place. Three economic impacts stand out. The supply chain, China's growth, and the country's internal debate about reform. They literally flew drones over Shanghai, broadcasting loudspeakers saying, suppress your soul's desire for freedom. That sounds like something I'm making up, and it's the God's honest truth. Suppress your soul's desire for freedom. I don't even know that the communists really believe you have a soul. But they want you to suppress its desire for freedom. There are massive supply chain problems now. The average wait time, backup wait time for ships in, in China and Shanghai's port was 100 ships. There are over 300 ships now. It's going to have global problems. It is the collapse of President Xi's zero COVID policy. It is the collapse of the Sinovax. Remember, the Sinovax, the Chinese rushed it out and claimed it would be the cure-all for COVID. And in fact, it's terrible. Countries that have used the Chinese vaccine that China gave away freely to earn goodwill have had massive waves of COVID with very little protection. At least with the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine, you may get COVID, but you have large protection from its its horrible fallout. And the Sinovac is giving none. China is not what the Western elite claim it to be, the leader of the world coming up. It can't even lead itself. And yet Western elite have given up on the West and are trying to kowtow to China now thinking it's about to be dominant. It's only dominant if you let it. And I'm telling you, you observe these things, you realize the country fundamentally has weaknesses 
that they themselves cannot and will not overcome if we just have Western leaders realize decline is a choice and we don't have to make that choice. Yep, you can, as the voice says, 877-973-7425. Pour one out for the Lamborghini purchasers. They have to wait 12 months for a car, the CEO says. Uh, This is from... (laughs) CNBC, the wait time for a new Lamborghini SUV or supercar is now over 12 months. As demand from wealthy car lovers shows little sign of slowing, the automaker's chief executive told CNBC, despite volatile stock markets and growing economic uncertainty, demand for Lamborghini is as high as ever. It's incredible, Stefan Winkleman, Lamborghini's CEO, said. It's difficult to make a forecast of what's going to happen for the rest of the year, 2022. But speaking to customers, speaking to all our leaders, we don't see any slowdown in terms of orders. Lamborghinis have become a favorite for the young rich who made their newly minted fortunes from crypto, stocks, tech companies, and inheritances. Winkleman says 70% of Lamborghini customers are under 40. Can I just say I find them to be ugly cars? I just, I, I, I think the Ferrari is a much better looking car and I don't want either one of them. They're not practical. They're not very good looking. Uh, they, they got, they're, they're terribly inefficient gas wise. I just, I was in Atlanta, Georgia a couple of weeks ago and there was some guy, it was a purple sparkly Lamborghini. And I just thought, why do so many people with so much money have no sense? Y'all, so I, I like to look at houses. One day I want to build a house. I got, got my buddy Vince is a home builder in Atlanta. And one day when I have money, I want to buy land. So I have no neighbors and I want to build a house. And I've had this house in my head since I was a kid. I had a teacher, Mr. Middlebrooks, who urged us to like build houses on our head and, and learn to like you put information in, in those rooms. And so when you need to recall, it was one of the games of, of, well, I remember I put this information in this room. So it never worked for me, but I kept building the house. I've had this house in my head since I was in sixth grade and I have refined it down to almost every detail. I don't know that it would actually be able to be built in the real world, but one day there's this architecture group in Atlanta called historical concepts. They build classical architecture. That's what I love. I don't like modern stuff. Would love to sit down with them and get out of my head this house and one day maybe actually build it. But I, so I look around at these houses. I'm like, you can tell that someone is newly rich because it looks like uh, King Midas vomited on their floor. I mean, so the, I, the most atrocious houses I've ever seen are, are guardy-ass rich people uh, with, with a bunch of wealth who have no sense and no sense of architecture, and it's like their interior designer took advantage of them. So, well, I can take advantage of this guy, and you got wrought iron and gold leaf and marble, and it's just, it's disgusting. I don't know why so many rich people have such bad taste in everything. Uh, it, it just, and why would you buy a Lamborghini? They're ugly cars. I, I just, I don't get it. I really don't get it. If I built a house, I'd want it to look like it had been there 500 years, not like it was put up yesterday by a French whore. It's 2022. Things are still crazy. Things haven't settled down. And now you got the Federal Reserve and interest rates. You got the economy. You got inflation. A lot of banks won't even return your phone call. Let's say you're a small business and you need a loan for $750,000 or higher. You see an opportunity where banks, they don't even want to see you. You want to buy a building? You want to build a building? 
reach out to the Frost family at First Liberty Building and Loan. They've been helping small businesses become big businesses since the 1990s. They want to help you if they can. So spend 10 minutes with them. See if you're a good fit for them and they're a good fit for you. Their website is firstlibertyga.com. That's firstlibertyga.com. Again, you need a loan, $750,000 or higher. You're a small business and you see an opportunity to grow. Share it with the Frost family and see if they can help you. Firstlibertyga.com. That's firstlibertyga.com. First Liberty Building and Loan can help businesses nationwide become bigger businesses.